thumbs rejoice. It's the Bob Olin Show, brought to you by Dan's Garden Center, located in Dan's Feedback in Superior. The WLSSD's Garden Green. Compost you'll dig. Now, KDAL's Master Gardener, Bob Olin. Hey, away we go with the Bob Olin Show here on the 22nd of March. Bob, it's officially springtime. The uh, flowers are popping out all over. <laughs> yeah, and a nice nice spring forecast for us as well. <laughs> yeah, we got a winter weather advisory in effect until 7 tomorrow morning. Freezing uh, drizzle and rain today, snow tonight, and that's uh, typical spring weather, I guess, in the Twin Ports. Yeah, it is kind of typical, and uh, we've talked about it a little bit in the past. We had a nice, some nice, uh, rather slow melting there, and uh, snow drifts are going down. And we can use all the moisture we can get this year. Uh, Dave, I've been checking uh, forecasts, and actually they're getting warmer and drier for the upper Midwest. Ooh. It's a drier, yeah, it's a drier part uh, during the main part of the growing season. And again, they're just probabilities, but probability is for uh, above average, slightly above average temperatures. And we were sticking with the average precipitation. Now they've moved those down a little bit below average in terms of precipitation. So. I think we can anticipate, and we'll see what happens. This is one situation where I hope they're good and wrong, that we actually get a little bit of this moisture. It's kind of hard to say at a morning like this when we're going to get plenty of it here. It'll kind of be inconvenient for a little while, probably. But uh, everything really does depend on what the rest of the country is going to be a little tight, and as you will know, um, everything's a little tight in the world. You know, green supplies a little tight, and... uh, with what isn't coming out of Ukraine, uh, it's been kind of an eye-opener there. Uh, they were huge agricultural producers, and unfortunately, they're not going to get this crop in the way things are going this year. So a lot of it is going to depend on uh, the American farmer, and I hope we get a good year, and a lot of that really does depend on moisture. So hopefully we'll uh, we'll see what happens here, Dave. But as gardeners, uh, as long as we're thinking a little bit about uh, and making some precautions for the mix of things we're going to grow and and accessing uh, available water that's available to us, as well as maybe, and we'll talk about some of these things, about how we can modify our own practices so we can conserve some moisture, use a little bit of that, and then uh, get that to the plants themselves. But that would, we've had moderately to moderately warm temperatures. Uh, I really think we're probably going to have a, a very good growing season and something to really look forward to, Dave. All right. Well, let's get things started with a phone call already this morning, Bob. Hi, who's this? Barb from Duluth. All right. Morning. Hi. Morning, Barb. Hi. I have a friend who has a problem with hostas. She moved into a house that already had some planted, and they are in full sun, and she thinks that's a problem. But they start out okay in the beginning of the season, but after a while they have holes in them, and they turn brown. What's the problem? Okay. Well, for one thing, uh, now some of the newer hosta varieties – uh, we'll really tolerate more sun, but hostas typically do the best in the shade to light shade. So I think that's one of the issues. Probably doesn't have anything to do with the holes. Uh, they are vulnerable to slugs, so there could be slug damage that's going on there as well. But it sounds as if the browning and so forth is a response to uh, the very bright conditions, particularly when you have a hot, bright year. The good thing about hostas is it can be moved just about any time. So if she can find a location where it's a little shadier and would want to move them, if they and they should have made it through the winter okay. So uh, I would say at any time uh, during the season, and ideally uh, early spring would be would be best. Uh, she could move those into a slightly 
shadier area, and I think more than likely that'll take care of the browning. I think that um, the slugs, you might want to be a little aware, they can be a real problem. So the hole might be caused by slugs. If you can find a good drainage, an area where the drainage improved is improved a little bit, and yet you've still got some shady conditions. So I think in this situation, they're not doing well as a group. I think I'd be planning on moving them, and I would uh, look for a location. Good drainage, but shade. Uh, they will actually tolerate deep shade, but light to deep shade, and I think uh, she'll do very well with those. Great. That sounds fine. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks for the call. Good. Very good question. Hospice, there's many different varieties. There's actually a very large hospice society of people that just uh, really love those plants. And for folks that may not be aware of them, they're going to broadleaf. You'll see them in the shade. They, uh, uh, you know, they they have flowers, but they're not real distinctive. So they're mainly grown for the foliage. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can get uh, very large leaf hostas. We get smaller leaf hostas. We've got hostas that are. Uh, in other words, they're white and uh, green. We've got some nice golden varieties. So there's a tremendous amount of variation and interest just in the foliage. But for many of us where we've got the trees overhead, people are looking for plants that grow well in the shade. Uh, they are spectacular that way. The only downside is the deer really do love them. So if you have a heavy uh, deer <laughs> population, you've got to think about controlling those critters as well. What don't deer love? <laughs> Boy, that's that's the truth. There's a, there's a statement. Actually, when they get hungry, there isn't much of anything. Yeah. There are a few things. I think if we take a look at uh, anything that's fuzzy or furry, mm-hmm. uh, they don't like that uh, prickly. Uh, they don't really like mints, which have any plant that has a square stem. They don't like uh, members of the onion family. So oh. onion, shallots, uh, garlic, uh, they really don't like those as well. Rhubarb, fortunately. Now, the interesting thing about rhubarb, Dave, and they will take those emerging buds just as they emerge. So uh, mm-hmm. you got to get past that early spring period. little ways away, hopefully not too far, far for us this year. But if you get past that and they don't get at the buds and we get some nice leaves on them, the leaves, of course, of um, rhubarb do contain oxalic acid. The stems typically never have any of that material, so you don't have to worry about that unless you get a real hard freeze. Now, mm-hmm. if you get a hard freeze, by your rhubarb, where the leaves actually drill, uh, drip and uh, fall over, uh, then some of that oxalic acid can be carried down into the stalks themselves. That'd be the only time you have to be concerned about uh, consuming the stalks. Light freezing is going to matter, and other than that, the stalks are never never poisonous. But they don't like that real bitter flavor, so uh, certainly rhubarb is a, uh, a good vegetable choice, but you're absolutely right. Other than rhubarb and onions, <laughs> they'll take just about anything, Dave. Maybe surround what you want to save with rhubarb and onions just to throw them off the, <laughs> well, the scent. Well, that might not be a bad idea. Yeah, get a couple <laughs> get a couple rows in there, and there uh, hopefully they don't jump over or don't get uh, figure out your plan. Hmm. It's amazing. Um, I'm pretty intelligent, and that's why yeah. they've done so well over time. They've learned to adapt to lots of different food sources and uh, it can be kind of hard to trick, kind of hard to fence out. Uh, they learn pretty quickly, but as long as they don't learn what trying to do, a barrier of rhubarb around your hostas might be just fine. Well, they learn there's a lot fewer, I guess, uh, predators in the town than there is out in the woods, so that's probably why they're living around town now. Yeah, I think there's yeah. lots of apple trees around, and uh, <laughs> for the most part, they're quite yeah. safe uh, during most times of the year, so they they figured that out too, Dave. Plenty to eat and no wolves. There you go. 
Uh, let's take another break real quick. We got the uh, uh, Bob Olin Show going strong here on the 22nd of March. More on the way. And once again, Bob Olin here on the Bob Olin Show. Bob, I think it was a couple weeks ago we talked about this giant potato that somebody grew. And upon further review, I guess it wasn't a potato after all. It was some sort of a gourd that uh, was huge. and So they had to dis, uh, disregard that record. It didn't happen, I guess. Interesting. There seems to be a lot of uh, misinformation. It's fake news out there, huh, Dave? Yeah, uh, you're uh, fading out every once in a while. I'm not sure if you're moving or if the phone is just acting funky, but it sounds great for the Thank most you, part. And then... Okay, I'm going to work on it. Can you hear me now? I yeah, that, that's pretty nasty right now. Oh, okay. Uh, let me see. I, well, well, we'll see here. That's a little better already. Is that better? I think so. <laughs> well, we'll see. So. We'll muddle through here somehow, but I might have to today. I'm on a cell phone, and uh, yeah. I just uh, this phone probably has seen better days. Maybe. <laughs> well, if you're close to a landline uh, transfer next time around, we'll see. Yes, we'll do that. All right. Yeah. Yeah, it's. We it, talk a little bit about the warm seat. You know, it's it's pretty interesting how the industry does tend to adjust to. Uh, uh, to consumer preferences, I've mm-hmm. noticed on a lot of the vegetable catalogs that what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of uh, warm season crops being featured. So we've got a lot of peppers. And the interesting thing about peppers, we, we did some research on the colored varieties of the peppers. We want to be able to mature those and ripen those up. Uh, you know, all peppers start green and then they go can go into different colors. And even one of the All-American selections called dragonfly is a is a deep purple pepper and what i'm kind of interested because in, i've grown many purples and they all tend to be a little thin skinned and we're really looking for those nice bell roasting peppers uh, roasting ve- vegetables becomes a very very popular and i think that uh that one called uh, dragonfly might be a good hit and uh, one of the problems that we have with the all-american selections is they'll make a selection that's a little difficult to get the seed but that one you can get this year the others, which uh, and there are many other intriguing varieties out there, new uh, purplish, uh, red purple potato, it looks like it might have some interest to it. To us, called purple zebra, probably a pretty good uh, description. A little smaller fruit, uh, kind of a deep uh, reddish color with green stripes. I think that's where it gets the zebra mm. connotation, and the interior is kind of striped with green as well. Yeah, apparently eats real well. Unfortunately, we're going to have to have a born year for that one because that's an 85-day pepper. You know, it's interesting, Dave, uh, all of these uh, warm season crops, obviously, we are not noted for warm season or warm weather up our way. Right. And uh, consequently, um, a lot of these don't fit, but many are beginning to come in where I'm adjusting uh, some of the trialing I'm doing just to be sure that we don't miss some of the best varieties. If we take a look at tomatoes, some of my favorites and some of the country's favorites really are a little late to mature here, so we don't get the type of performance we'd really like out of them. But we're looking at some of the warmer season. Mountain Merritt, a, a product that came from Dr. Gardner out of North Carolina, did a lot of work on, on tomatoes, and a lot of his varieties just uh, were a little too late maturing. Mountain Spring was an early mature that he introduced, but it, uh, it frankly, we've got other early maturing varieties that do a little bit better than that. But Mountain Merritt is one that in a warm year, and the last couple of years have been warm for us. Uh, so that's one, actually, that I put on my top ten list. So I think uh, very, very nice, very productive, good slicing tomato, and it's a determinate. 
you know, we kind of like determinate varieties because they're easier to manage, easier to handle. They'll grow three, four feet in height, so you can cage them. You can uh, string them up one way or another. You can stake them, and they're easier to manage than the indeterminate. Now, some of the great varieties out there, uh, a better way as an example is an indeterminate uh, that it can be extremely productive, but you've got to have a system in place where if it wants to grow to six feet or eight feet, to get the maximum yield, you really have to have a system in mind where you can stake them up and you can support all that weight. So there are ways to do that, certainly. And uh, a lot of us that are uh, running overhead uh, lines for uh, in high tunnels and so forth uh, can handle that. But there's a lot of fruit and a lot of weight off the ground. So I'm kind of looking for the home gardener for these determinate varieties uh, that are a little bit easier to manage, a little bit easier to handle. But uh, going to be a lot of new tomato introductions. There are uh, about 15,000 out there, which is amazing. <laughs> they cross quite readily. As I mentioned before, I, I counted up about 1,500 I had just in the catalog wow. in front of me. thing so is, you have to try them all out, too, Bob. Well, we have to try them all, of course. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're, uh, well, do you, if you have access to a landline, we'll take a break and, and call me back on that, would you? I'll see that. Yes, okay, it's pretty tough at this point. We're coming up on 931. Let's take a break, get some news for you, and a check on the weather, too. Once again, here is Bob Olin. Good morning again, Bob. Yes, good morning, Dave. I hope that's better for you. It sounds a little better at this point. Okay, that's good. We'll see how long it lasts. We'll see how long it lasts, and I don't know if we have any more callers call in. We'll try <laughs> to address them. Uh, sometimes the communications can be a little difficult. Ah, that's true, too, but that's all right. Well, it is uh, spring. How's your compost uh, pile doing? <laughs> well, my compost pile's got plenty of moisture on it this ah. year. I'll say that for it. <laughs> so it, uh, we're going to wait a bit. My my pile uh, should take off early. You know, as I mentioned to people, <laughs> if you build a good compost pile, uh, you certainly can keep them cooking. Did a little work on that where I had them all monitored with uh, temperature probes and oxygen meters and uh we actually had compost that uh, composted right through the winter months, and the process really didn't set down, shut down until about March. The outside, of course, is your insulating layer, mm-hmm. and learned quite a bit from that. As a matter of fact, uh, the big thing is no big pile, and if you want to compost during the winter months, uh, the advantage of that is the outer layer does dry down, so the composting process stops there. But uh, that outer layer of material insulates everything going on in the inside, so the process continues. It's kind of like you got a little furnace going on the inside. My goal was to uh, be able to take all leaves and get them composted for six, eight months and have a product ready to go in the garden by spring. Uh, that's a little bit challenging. The interior of the pile was complete, but as I mentioned, you had to kind of incorporate the the outer portion. Uh, compost, Dave, is uh, considers gardener's gold. Uh, I never have enough. I've been known to offer to collect uh, folks' potato peelings and other things when I've been out of those other locations, and I never hesitate. I compost virtually everything that's organic because I could always use more. Our uh, soils, we've got some pretty fair mineral soils, but they tend to be deficient in organic matter. If you take a look at some of the uh, native soils in the breadbasket of the United States down there in Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, southern Minnesota, these deep, rich, dark soils uh, that dark color, of course, comes from the organic material, but that's been deposited for literally thousands of years, and they have a base of material down there. There are some areas that wouldn't really even require any additional fertility. There's so much 
natural fertility in the soil and moisture holding capacity as well. So we have some of those regions. We're not blessed with that in northeastern Minnesota, blessed with a lot of other things, but um, not necessarily those wonderful, deep, rich, uh, highly organic soils. So we come along, and if we can find, you know, a good mineral soil that drains pretty well, we can always add organic, one of the good sponsors of the program, uh, the Sanitary District, Western Lake Superior Sanitary District, of course, has their municipal composting facility and produce a product that's available both bulk as well as bagged, and that can be useful. I think we probably will got some uh, programming coming up this spring, and I'm going to touch on composting, I think, on uh, all the programs, just because I think it becomes even more important in a hot, dry year like this. Compost adds some nutrient, one, one to two percent nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, but uh, also adds some trace nutrients. But its real benefits are in the microbial activity as well as its ability to really hold moisture, and that's what's going to be really uh, critical in the year coming up, Dave. They have got a uh, well. There's going to be a giant compost pile in Jefferson County, Wisconsin. State agricultural officials are planning to compost. Millions of dead chickens who were infected with the bird flu at a Jefferson County farm. Uh, The process of killing the nearly 3 million chickens is ongoing. They'll then be transported to a field about 8 miles down the road and be composted. The state says composting, the most environmentally friendly way to dispose of the infected birds. Uh, Lane, I have a story. Uh, right at the time, <laughs> my grain's a little short and expensive, and uh, you're yeah. going to see that food price. We lose, what, a million birds there, huh? Three million chickens. Three million birds. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, that's amazing. Well, that's uh, that's real heartache, and there's uh, mm-hmm. whoever the owner of those birds are is uh, is kind of suffering the consequences, but that's correct. That would probably be the best, very best way to handle that, and they'll go back to the good earth one way or another, but... Uh, I know that that's a technique that's done properly for disposal of some animal carcasses, but wow. it's a shame to hear a story like that one, Dave. That's true. Well, I, I can do you one better. <laughs> oh, great. Give, give me another day, Barney. There is a Colorado <laughs> funeral home that's laying to rest the state's first legally composted human remains. There we go. Coming less than a year after the Colorado state of Colorado first legalized the process as a more environmentally friendly alternative to burial or cremation. Have yourself composted, I guess. Well, there's there may be another option. Gee whiz. And, uh, <laughs> well, we're, we're away from that, Dave, so uh, that's, uh, we're fortunate that way. But I uh, hate to even think about that, but nonetheless... I know. <laughs> Nonetheless, probably the way to return there, dust to dust, right? Like, well, natural reduction is what they call it, converting human bodies into soil. Keep, I guess keep that in mind if you want to be friendly when you go. Well, you know, the the themes, and it's a good thing. We've got everyone that is. Uh, <laughs> most people are a little more environmentally conscious today, and yeah. uh, certainly the awareness is there. And uh, we've got, if I could mention, we are doing a program in Duluth, April 23rd, our spring gardening extravaganza, getting back together face-to-face for a couple of years here. We haven't been able to do that. So uh, this is going to be a good day, and we've titled it uh, Creating Your Eco-Friendly Integrated Landscape. We're going to take a look at integrating uh, vegetable fruit gardens with uh, flowering pollinator gardens with a bee-friendly lawns and all done in environmentally uh, friendly manner. So we're going to try to we're going to try to encapsulate it all in one day. That little programming will run from about nine to two. It should be a real good day with lots of good content coming up there. I'm even going to do a 
I'm going to do a segment on uh, sunflowers, which I haven't done in the past. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sunflowers, the national flower of uh, Ukraine. Very, very interesting history over there. And one of our master gardeners has Ukrainian ancestry, and he mentioned that to me. So we're going to follow up on that one just a little bit. But uh, sunflowers were... Uh, and the production of oil from sunflowers came from Ukraine and Russia. It's kind of interesting. The uh, Holy Orthodox Church banned a lot of oils, but uh, sunflower oil wasn't mentioned <laughs> in their restrictions, maybe because they didn't know sunflowers produced oil. And hence, uh, the sunflower oil industry emerged, uh, and it was a, actually a major, major ex- export crop for both Ukraine and for Russia. And uh, they developed a lot of the sunflower varieties. Now, of course, that's spread here into the United States. And anyone that's been traveled in the North or South Dakota uh, during late summer can see the huge number of acres. We got over a million acres of uh, sunflower seed production. Most of that is for oil production to produce sunflower oils rather than ornamentals. But nonetheless, it's become a huge uh, industry in the United States but all originated over in Ukraine and in the Soviet Union, and that was because of the church's restriction on other oils there. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it, Dave, how things tend to evolve? And I know the birds certainly like the sunflower seeds, as do many of us, too, I think, when they roast them correctly. Yeah, the birds, uh, certainly they're, they're an animal feed, and, mm-hmm. but uh, the large-scale production is really about uh, sunflower right. oil here. Right. Now, how do they grow in this neck of the woods? Can you grow sunflowers pretty easily up here? Well, if we can, uh, we got to wait just a little bit. We can direct see yeah. them, and I'm going to put together a little scoop sheet for folks on that, nice. exactly how to handle them. And uh, we've got uh, actually one of the new, and I've been talking a little bit about the All-American selection, and one of the new flowering uh, selections is happens to be a sunflower. And I've not seen this uh, connection to occurring. I think I just happened to fall by it. But uh, nonetheless, uh, they got a variety up there called Concert Bell, which has got multiple flowers off a single stem. You know, most, and you're familiar with uh, a typical sunflower, has one nice flowering head off uh, a main stem, but Concert Bell has multiple flowers off the stem, so it looks uh, very attractive. Going to try to get a little handle on that. that. They're also, you know, really they're a, a major composite flower, so you've got in the interior of that flower, it's not one great big flower. You've got hundreds of flowers on the inside and then ray flowers on the outside, so it's, it's a composite of many, many flowers. And folks want to do something for the pollinating insects, the honeybees, as well as their native bees. Uh, you want to, when you can plant sunflowers, you want to be a little careful, though. I've, I've seen in a lot of catalogs where they're pushing and promoting pollenless flowers, no pollen. Hmm. And uh, that's because they, uh, they probably are a little cleaner when you bring them inside for floral displays. Oh. But that's the opposite of what we really want to do. So you want to stay away from the pollenless varieties if you want to help the pollinating insects and if you want them out in your landscape. So... Look for some of the older, old-fashioned varieties. The nice thing, the old-fashioned varieties are cheapest varieties, and they're also going to be, again, the most environmentally friendly because they contribute uh, to for a food supply. That pollen is really food for the pollinating insects that do such a great job of pollinating all, most of the other fruits and vegetables in our landscapes. Uh, Bob, when we want our bee-friendly lawns, obviously, when do we start uh, purchasing the dandelion seed? <laughs> that's a good question, Dave. You know, that's, that's one of nature's little gifts. Ah, you I see. You don't have to buy that, do you? <laughs> no, it certainly <laughs> your neighbor, is. If, 
if you're trying to keep it out of your yard, your neighbor will donate it without any any charge. It's just a nice neighborly thing that they tend there to do. There you go. Dave. Yeah, they send uh, they tend to spread uh, pretty much everywhere in the neighborhood. If you, if you got them, somebody else will get them soon. Well, we're going to be talking about a mix that'll include self heal and clover, which is uh, mm-hmm. lower standing and it fits pretty nicely in with the. Uh, the grass in your lawn, uh, but the, quite frankly, the dandelions do provide an extra source early in the season when they're in full bloom. So I guess they have their place as well. So uh, I think they're going to become uh, environmentally acceptable in folks' lawns as well. But we're we're not going to go that direction. Right. We're going to give you some other alternatives that I think you will find very attractive and will also provide uh, a food source for the pollinating insect. Let's uh, head back to the phones. Hi, who's this? Hi, this is Sally. Hi, Sally. Um, I'd like to grow a few pea shoots. Please tell me how to do that. Uh, just the shoots. Is that correct? Yes. Huh. Yep. Okay. You're, you're not going to grow out the plant. You just want to consume the shoots? Yes. Okay. Well, I think it's critical thing. I don't think it's too difficult to do. You know, they will... Peas, obviously, cool season crop, they will germinate at about uh, 40 or 45 degrees, so they'd almost uh, even germinate in the refrigerator, but I think they'd really uh, germinate, they do germinate faster at warmer temperatures, even room temperature. I think the critical thing is you just want to be sure when you're purchasing seed that there isn't any kind of a treatment. They tend to treat uh, pea seed because it goes in the ground early and it tends to rot off by the soil-borne fungi, uh, many times that seed is a treated seed treated with a fungicide. So anything, when you're purchasing the seed, that's going to be the real critical thing for you. And then they will uh, they'll germinate very readily. You could probably, uh, uh, you know, just use a, a well-drained uh, material, uh, such as um, probably vermilion or vermiculite would be a good, uh, good product. You can wash off the of this and then it's moisture. Uh, they should germinate pretty readily for you, and you can consume the uh, certainly consume the sprouts. Uh, you know, I'm going to look into that one for you. We had uh, we had some other issues with uh, some of the alfalfa sprouting, where you had to be very careful how you handled it. There was a salmonella risk there, so I'd like to do a little work on that to see if there's uh, any potential risk with uh, peas. I I don't believe there's a lot of shoots that are still continue to continue to produce them but we did have that issue at one time and i'd look into that a little bit and make sure before we uh we did any harm first if that uh if that helps at all for you we have a little time you can can sprout them anytime i'm thinking perhaps of a few small containers inside right now i just add them to salad or sometimes just eat you know a few of them just as a snack and so so, okay, so then you grow them in some kind of container, and then you cut them off, and then you have to start over again, right? They don't yeah, what you're going to do, you got to start with the seeds. So all you're going to do is grow the sprouts, and then you throw everything out. There will be a little husk left behind, and that's all going to be discarded, and uh, you're just going to constantly start new, uh, new pea seed. And where do I find that special seed? Yeah, uh, you know what I'd probably do? I'd look at a couple of the catalogs uh, to make sure, and I'll throw a name out. Johnny's Seed should have some. They do a lot of a lot with sprouting. I don't happen to have a catalog in front of me at the moment, but uh, maybe we could uh, take a little closer look. But catalog sources for edible pea seed is what you want to look for. Oh, great. Thank you. Hey, thanks for the okay. call. 
interesting question. Yeah. Uh, goes back again when uh, sprouting became so important or so was going to be an emerging industry. Now you have to be use extreme caution when you're sprouting. It was alfalfa sprouts that seemed to get people in a little bit of difficulty. So we want to be careful. I'm not sure that that carries over to pea sprouting. But again, my biggest issue there would be let's be safe first. Let's make sure that we source seed that's designed for uh, human consumption and uh, no pesticides at all on them. I heard of pea shooters, but I never heard of pea shoots before. So that was a new one on me. <laughs> It's a new one. It's the first time we've ever had that question. Yeah. As well, dude. All right. Coming up on 951, we'll take another break. More of the Bob Olin Show coming up. Well, last time we talked, Bob, a couple weeks ago, there was a whole lot of snow on the ground. Now, except for some of the uh, large drifts, the snow is uh, going away quickly, and that's good news, unless we get a couple more inches tonight. But it's starting to look more like spring out there. I think so, and again, uh, it's amazing how fast it can change, and I guess we're all kind of aware of that, that it changes in a hurry. Mm-hmm. But we had about a, you know, what was it, about a two-week period there where things really uh, did melt fairly uh, slowly mm-hmm. and not a lot of frost in the ground. Uh, we're not seeing, there's not going to be, I guess, a lot of flooding down the Mississippi River. I heard wow. that the north, the Red River Valley may experience some of that, so we'll see what's going to happen there, but for the most part, I think we're going to be okay with this year's belt. In fact, it matter that uh, we don't have that trust there. Most of it should go on the ground. And as I said, it's okay every day. That's what we possibly can get. Wow. The projections, again, have changed a little bit to not just warmer on average, but warmer and drier during the growing season. So right. we'll take every little bit of moisture, even, even if tonight we're going to grumble about <laughs> it or tomorrow morning a little bit. Uh, we'll take it. Thank you. Yeah, the good thing about spring snowstorms, it won't stick around too long. We've got time probably for... Yeah, time for one more call here, Bob. Hi, who's this? Hi. Well, this is Judy from Bending Birch's Greenhouse. Oh. And we yeah. want to wish Bob, Bob Olin a happy birthday week. <laughs> Thank you for You're spring. So kind. <laughs> That's very, very thoughtful of you, and uh, please thank you for the greeting, and please greet our friend Tom Casper as well, who uh, was the proprietor there. So fantastic. We're looking forward to seeing you all this spring. All right. All happy right. for evening. Yeah, thanks for the call, and happy birthday, Bob. I didn't realize it was your